0: Forever Dog. Bye, da, 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 da. comic books, comic time, writers and artists are on the line. They make a splash as a comic's red and take us on a trip behind the spread. Watch out for comic book commentary uh-huh. Spinning a winning inside. Fix how they got a hot idea. Narrative character, visual tricks, and Bam. onomatopoeia. Uh-huh. It's comic book commentary. Hello, I'm Rob Sheridan, a writer and co-creator of High Level on DC Vertigo, and uh, I'm here to talk to you about issue one, which is available now in comic shops everywhere. So open up your copy and uh, get ready to follow along. Page one here. um, You know, there's really not much I can say about this page (laughs) without giving anything away. Uh, All I'll say is that it's not going to make sense for a while. It's, It's a hint of a much bigger story arc um, that the series is leading up to. We um, we planned everything out of what happens in the series, which is either going to be an 18 issue or 12 issue story. And that was important to me because I didn't want to end up in a situation where we were just dragging it on and making things up as we went along. Um, so that gives me the freedom to drop weird little hints like this which you'll see throughout the series that i know will actually make sense later and be satisfying um, when they all kind of connect together so all i'll say is page one is important but uh, i can't tell you how yet so let's move on to page two and three so here we have 13's opening monologue um, and it's significant uh, in a few ways as, as a starting point for the series I wrote this monologue over a year ago while I was still developing the story, and I think it actually might have been the first actual dialogue that I wrote for the book, and I knew right away that this is how I wanted uh, the series to start. It it sets the tone of the world we're in, um, which is a future so far and, and so disconnected from right now that the people here don't even know what the Bible is. and you know the monologue continues to kind of lay out some major themes of the series themes of systems of power that control and manipulate the many for the benefit of the few and how foreign that concept is um, to 13 who doesn't live her life that way in this part of the world and picking up this book um reading it without any societal context for it um she doesn't understand these themes of blind obedience uh, and faith and things like that. So she kind of summarily dismisses it as, as boring. The uh, the original version of this monologue was uh, much longer, but I quickly learned in in the process of making this issue how much dialogue needs to be condensed for space in, in comic pages to let the art breathe. But the spirit of it is still here. Um, one bit of flair that got kind of condensed from the original script was 13 originally was a lot sassier and more judgmental about this idea that people would believe in this book and follow these rules, as she put them, dumb rules, and follow them to their deaths. Um, My editor, Andy, felt that 13 casting such harsh judgment on religion made her seem immature and bratty, but that was kind of intentional. I want Thirteen's personality to be a bit abrasive, uh, a bit selfish, a bit cocky at the beginning of the story, because she needs room to grow, and she's going on a journey that's not just a physical journey through the world, but also a personal journey, and, um, and her glaring flaws as a character at the beginning are important to her growth later on. So, we spend a lot of time in this issue striking the balance of Thirteen being a bit overly cocky and selfish, but also still likable enough that you see the potential in her and, and that you want to go on this journey with her. So Thirteen is waxing philosophical about the Bible, and it's contrasted with her working her very unglamorous job emptying septic tanks. And here she's emptying the septic behind Benny's Family Restaurant. We didn't uh, we didn't end up with space to put the full sign in there, but it's meant to be a, an old restaurant building that's been repurposed into a, a saloon in this world. And it it sits at the intersection of four outland regions and attracts a wide and diverse crowd. And 13, as you can see, is a regular here. So moving on to page four, this is one of my favorite pages. This is what I call our cantina scene because it, it functions basically the same way that the Star Wars cantina scene does. It's an early opportunity to show how big and diverse our world is and to show the people of the Outland regions where Thirteen lives. My idea here was to use the kind of the rough biker bar trope, um, because this part of the world is all about survival, but then to filter it through a lens of, you know, imagining that all cultural boundaries and, and preconceptions have been stripped away. So there's no preconceived notions of what, you know, masculinity is. There's no judgment for how people want to express themselves, how they want to dress or act. There's no rules in that regards. So you, you might see this huge guy here wearing a wig and a tutu and fairy wings, and no one bats an eye at that. That's just, that's just how he wants to dress. No one cares. But if you fuck with him, he'll fuck you up. So we wanted to show that anyone's accepted here, but when you see 13 smashing a bottle across this guy's face and no one even reacting at all, that's meant to show that everyone here looks after themselves. And if you fuck with someone, you're going to get fucked with. Um, it's a it's a society that you know is is self-patrolling in a way so it's this kind of convergence of expressiveness and survivalism here in Onida i, I uh i originally described it as mad max by way of hate ashbury so moving on to page 5 um this scene is where you see that 13 actually has a, a kind of side mission here as a smuggler and I kind of wanted to start the episode with this kind of standalone mission, kind of like the way a James Bond movie starts. Um, it's a it's a side mission that becomes a mulligan for a larger conflict. So I, I also wanted to show thirteen here being being very cocky. You know, this is what she does all the time. She's good at it. She waltzes through this bar, and you know, and and is cocky about how she approaches her contact here. And um, it's all old hat for her. She's not really taking it entirely seriously. And another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24/7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. That cockiness about how good she is at this is gonna, kind of going to come back to bite her in the ass later in the issue. So you'll see in the background here that uh, you'll see a con uh, in the bar watching 13. That's kind of a little hint for later Um showing that perhaps he was trying to initially contact her here, but he, he didn't get a chance to, or maybe that he was just observing her uh, before the bar gets raided. Um, in the bathroom, there's um, there's a really tiny Easter egg here, kind of a personal Easter egg that's really meant for five people. <laughs> um, the orange text says GBs, which is the name of a all-girl band that my wife plays in with some friends just for fun. And every week they'd get together at the guitarist's house to jam and and have a big meal and just get everyone together and i'd often hang out and work on notes for high level while they were playing music and i came up a lot with a lot of the ideas for the series there including the design of the high level logo and, and a bunch of other specifics of the script so i dropped a little nod in there for the band girls on to page uh, six and seven now so 13 slips out the back before uh Things get too bad with the uh, with the raid at Benny's. Um, on her drive home, here in page seven, um, I love Ezra in the car seat here. That was that was something Barnaby created after I'd originally written Ezra to be sitting on a cushion uh, to show that thirteen kind of cares for him like a pet. But uh, Barnaby went the extra mile here by adding the car seat, and it. it's such a great moment. So they arrive at Ordale Fair, this uh, this independent community where thirteen lives. It's sort of a hippie anarchist commune. Um, and it's built in the ruins of an old amusement park. The location was, um, it's one of my favorites. It was so fun to dream up and design, you know, looking at every old ride being uh, repurposed into something functional. But they also kept most of the ride structures and decorations because they're, they're a really expressive community and they're very creative with the places and things that they scavenge from the old world. So they've refurbished these old carnival structures and found ways to make them useful for their community without destroying the spirit of the park. And it's, it's only mentioned in passing um, in a later issue, but these trees you see here, they're, they're these genetically designed bioelectric, the people call them super trees. We, um, we pulled inspiration for these from the kind of alien-like desert plants that grow in Joshua Tree. And the idea of super trees is they were created to be able to grow and survive almost anywhere. And their leaves create electricity through photosynthesis. That's a real technology that's already being developed right now. So the people of Onida have scavenged these seed kits and discovered that they can grow these strong, adaptable trees that are basically organic solar power grids. And um, that allows them to have electricity and, and thrive in parts of the world where power grids are long gone and parts of the world where people up north think that no one can actually live but they have found a way to make it work here with with all these kind of adaptable ways of living so on to page eight and um pages eight through eleven are are where we meet jasper and and ima and you know we get two very different views of of the high level myth um, from these characters and I don't want to comment too much on these pages, so I, all I'll say is that neither of them are right, but like all myths, they both contain elements of the truth. So let's let's skip to page 12, and this is probably my favorite scene in issue 1. Um, 13 is, is in her happy place here. She's alone, she's at home in her Gravitron fort, and this is very much inspired by my life growing up uh, as an only child. I'd, I'd spend thousands of hours alone. Very happily in my little world with all my stuff, just how I wanted it, drawing pictures and playing toys and video games and writing stories. Thirteen's a loner by nature uh, because I'm a loner by nature. And in this scene, she's, she's a bit discomforted um, by the events of the day, you know, with, with the unusual raid at Benny's and, and then Jasper deciding to leave Onita. There's changes happening in her world that that are making thirteen feel like she's losing control of, of things being just the way that she wants them to be. Uh, she likes to be in control, and that's what we're seeing here. Um, in the original draft of this scene, I had thirteen cutting and dyeing her hair. Um, this, that's why uh, she had her short green hair on the cover image. The idea was um, it was inspired by my wife doing what. I think you know a lot of people can relate to just one night when um when everything felt like it was out of control and and you know we didn't know what the future held and there was a lot there was a lot going on, and she just you know wanted to feel control over something, so she was drunk and just locked herself in the bathroom and gave herself a frantic haircut <laughs> and um it was just like. Ah, everything's spiraling out of control. Fuck it. I'm going to give myself bangs. You know, that's like something you can control. So that's what inspired the scene. Um, because when 13 is, isn't feeling in control of things changing around her, she decides to change something she can control, her hair. But then, um, it was my wife who then suggested that 13 not cut her hair here for the reason of it's harder to cosplay short hair <laughs> and, um, and it was a good point. So we decided to keep her hair long, um, for a little bit longer and, uh, she'll cut it later on in the series and go to the short look, but, um, this, we just changed it so that she just only dyes her hair here, but it, it maintains the spirit of what the scene is about. And, uh, another detail I love here is how our letterer, Nate, changes the colors of 13th captions according to her hair color. You'll see it change from blue to purple, right? When she dyes her hair. Um, in this last panel here on um, on page 12, 13's sitting at her workstation, and, and the implication here is that she's supposed to be studying the intel for the job Ema Center for tomorrow, but she's too distracted with her thoughts, and she's drinking and smoking and staring off into space, and maybe she should have been a little bit more prepared for the mission, but she's still kind of shaken by the day's events, so she decides to blow off her work and go do something different and that takes us to page 13 where we see her kind of abandon um her work here and grab the bottle of whiskey and that scene of her um grabbing the bottle of whiskey is directly inspired by um the scenes i love of blade runner where deckard's alone in his apartment and he's playing the piano and he grabs a bottle of whiskey off it to go uh, to go look at the photos those scenes in Blade Runner like really caught my caught my eye when I first saw it when I was a teenager and I wanted 13's fort here to be kind of a mix of like my my childhood bedroom with Deckard's apartment um, with JF Sebastian's apartment with his uh, mechanical toys and indeed 13 has uh, has these mechanical toys here she builds these little marionette robots that she controls with gesture gloves, and she guides them through these elegant operatic dances. And this is what she does to calm down and relax at the end of the night. This is kind of like her art, and and this is her piece, and this is the last time she's gonna have this to herself. You'll see some uh, familiar stickers in Thirteen's room here. The, the Year Zero one was my edition, and uh, Barnaby put in the rest. So moving on to page 14, uh... Here we have 13 on another mission at an old warehouse compound that she described as creepy because she's never seen anyone there. She empties the septic tank outside the gates, money's always waiting for her, and she leaves. I've never seen anyone around except these security drones. And now she has to infiltrate this compound for the first time. The the structure here, uh this building was once long ago a factory of a cybernetics company that did military contract work. Um, creating cybernetic enhancements for soldiers. You can kind of see some of that in the advertising on the billboards for enhanced vision, faster running, things like that. Um, I called the factory structure FVRM as a nod to John Frum, the mythical figure from Cargo Cults, Um, since basically what we're about to see here is a cargo cult of the future that's taken residence in this cybernetics factory and, and built a whole religion around it. So on to pages 15 and 16, now you see uh, more of the abandoned factory and you get a taste of the mythology of this cyber cult. So in in the world of high level, everyone has different ideas about the old world and what happened. And these people um, who found this ancient factory and all these bits of old cybernetic parts, they've come to believe that people in the old world were cybernetic gods who were superior to normal humans um, because they'd abandoned the flesh and replaced their body parts with machinery. So this cult believes that the less flesh you have, the higher level of consciousness you've attained. And that takes us to page 17, and um, here we have the reveal of the high priest of this cyber cult, uh, with this just absolutely badass character designed by Barnaby. And this is a case where um, what Barnaby drew was nothing like what I wrote, but it was really cool. Um, I'd written these cultists to be like really spindly, weak, sickly people, like frail and hunched over. They they were addicted to replacing their bodies with cybernetics and and doing these horrific DIY surgeries with old patched together equipment in this old factory and and these like these surgical replacements were giving them infections and destroying their bodies. So I'd written this high priest here as, as this hunched over skinny horrific man with spindly homemade uneven spider legs coughing and oozing and and still the whole way preaching to all these dying believers that if they just keep believing and, and just keep removing more of their flesh uh, that their devotion will pay off and they'll finally exit the flesh entirely in the silver city. So Barnaby comes back with the pencils for this page, and he's created this big, powerful, badass supervillain. And it's totally not what I had in mind, but also it's really fucking cool. So I was a little torn and I, I emailed my editor Andy with this with this kind of long drawn-out back and forth of like how it wouldn't make sense for these guys to be so physically strong and powerful. The cybernetics are supposed to be killing them, but also this is a rad character design. And um you know, I wasn't sure. Like, maybe I should have Barnaby dial it back a bit, but you know, because it logically didn't make sense to me that the high priest would look like this. And <laughs> so Andy replies to this long email that I wrote with just one <laughs> sentence. <laughs> this is this is exactly what he wrote. To quote the directors of Crank Two High Voltage, sometimes there is the more important logic of awesome. <laughs> and okay, well. Ha- How do you argue with that? (laughs) So, so that was it. (laughs) The character design stayed the way it is. And, uh, and our cyber priest is such a badass now that, um, that I kind of feel bad that he gets killed off right away. But, you know, it's comics, you know, you can always bring people back from the dead. Maybe we'll bring them back. The last few pages, um, of the story are mostly banter between 13 and a con, this, this old flame who's appeared kind of out of nowhere to, seemingly rescued Thirteen at the last second um, from this cult and in in the banter here you have Thirteen kind of at her worst a little bit you know now that things are completely out of her control and she hates that so she's frustrated that she got caught on the job which has never happened to her before and she can't figure out how it happened and she's bewildered that a con has suddenly shown up in this moment and she's irritated that he, you know, saved her, which is the last thing she wants. So, this is kind of an emotionally charged conversation for 13 and it'll continue into the beginning of issue 2. And Akon here is just is trying to explain things to her, like this war that he's wrapped up in and and this mission he wants her to do and and 13 wants none of it. You know, she she doesn't care about any of that. So, Akon's trying to tell her that she no longer has the luxury of of not caring. The wars come to her backyard and, and if she wants things to stay the way they are, she needs to help him with this mission. So I won't say a lot more than that because a lot more is explained in the next issue, but it's clear now that 13 is going to have to take on this dangerous mission and, and escort this child messiah, Minnow, back to her home in high level. And the journey to high level is going to span the first, um, six issue story arc and it's not really, this journey is not really what the series is ultimately about. Um, it's kind of a, a lead in to a much bigger story arc. And the mysteries that are going to be teased along the way are, are hints of something much bigger that's going on in this world. So you might think that you know what the story structure is, but by issue seven, it's going to be something completely different. So please, uh, please do subscribe to the series and stick around for the ride and find out the secrets of High Level. Thanks for joining me here today. And uh, if you're not already, you can keep up with High Level on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, at High Level Comic. We'll be posting art previews and and a lot more backstory and lore of the world there. And uh, for easy subscription links, go to highlevelcomic.com. Thank you, and take care. Forever! Dog! This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm,